0: Hi everybody, this is Wyatt, and uh, for this week's supplemental episode I would like to read a section from Stephen Thrower's book Beyond Terror, the films of Lucio Fulci, because next week's uh, full-length episode is going to be on Fulci's uh, film The Beyond, and I think that there's, um, this movie is a bit different from pretty much everything that we've talked about uh, thus far on the show, because it is um, very violent and gory, and uh, it falls into a zone of more maybe gratuitous horror um, movies that we, we haven't gotten into yet, and that in some of our discussions, Dave and I have, have talked about not generally enjoying. So, uh, The Beyond is, I think, very different from the stuff that we've uh, been referring to when we've said that we're not super into violence, we're not into cruelty, things like that. But because The Beyond is uh, is an extremely violent movie and Lucio Fulci's uh, oeuvre is generally extremely violent and sort of over the top, that uh, this section of Stephen Thrower's um, wonderful book would be worth, checking out Um, and since it's a bit it's an expensive book it's a physically very large book it's um, maybe not the most readily available it is on Canadian Amazon but um, I thought that instead of just putting it out there and expecting listeners to source it read it all that stuff that this specific section I would just read out Um, not a dramatic reading but just Read it out loud so this way you can just passively experience (laughs) these thoughts and um, bear them in mind for next week's episode on the Beyond. So, without further ado, um, here we go. Violence is Italian art. The above statement was made by Fulci in an interview nearly 17 years ago, and he was then embroiled in making that statement truer than ever before. Before going on to look at the films he made at that time, it's worth pausing a moment to consider the extremely vexed question of violence and the morality or otherwise required in its representation. To me, there is something strangely offensive about the idea of screen violence, quote, justified by the plot or redeemed by context. All art, it could be argued as we reach the late, late 20th century, is gratuitous. There is only apologetic or unapologetic gratuitousness in the depiction of violence. Even then, we can be tricked into adopting a hierarchical system of judgment by prioritizing the film of, quote, high moral seriousness, to the detriment of other, less didactic films. Take, for instance, Krzysztof Kieslowski's A Short Film About Killing, 1988, which shows us the hideous human destruction that lies behind the grandiose phrase, capital punishment. The film's explicit horror includes such sights as excrement sliding from the hanged man's trouser leg into a tray, placed there especially for that purpose. The detail is disturbing as much for the acceptance it exposes as for the element of physical disgust. This is very provocative and skillful. Still, valuable though the film is as a challenge to society to reject such barbaric state crimes it is best experienced in its details, devoid of the need for artistic justification. To point to the film's political agenda and its moral seriousness as a reason enough to allow the detailed depiction of violence, as many critics tend to do, is to trade one serious point, kislovskys anger at the state's violence, for another, namely, the freedom of expression that all artists should have, Just because a filmmaker creates a work where violence is an expression of a profound moral position doesn't mean that the absence of the latter precludes artistic engagement with the former. Cinematic violence can be the medium for a social, moral, or political argument, but is never simply justified by these aims. The notion of there being a justified violence in art is one that rests on very shaky ground ground that horror fans nonetheless often end up occupying, because we've allowed the terms of the argument to be defined by those who wish to censor artistic endeavor. We seem to find ourselves talking about this or that film's responsible use of violence there in the film to further a psychological or social point that the responsible filmmaker is alleged to be making. As soon as we enter this discourse, though, we are immediately on the defensive, with the onus on us to justify a sequence of film on criteria that many of us do not share. It would take more than Fulci's much-publicized remarks about the drill scene in City of the Living Dead, quote, a cry I wanted to launch against a certain kind of fascism, to construct a defense for the film on the grounds of high moral purpose. The term gratuitous carries such a negative weight of connotation, callous, thoughtless, slapdash, unjustified, exploitative, wrong. That often the unfortunate horror fan is reduced to playing down the genre's capacity to shock and outrage the senses, defensively labeling horror films harmless, a qualifier that only means something because we have subliminally allowed ourselves to consider some of them harmful. There are all sorts of ways in which fans are prevailed upon by the surrounding discourse as hostile to the genre, to assert that the very scenes they so like in these films don't really work, don't really disturb, or shock or require us to take them seriously. Thus, fans might start to mutter about the unconvincing special effects, the bad dubbing, the cheesy music, the less than serious acting, or whatever. One is reminded of the way that newspapers manage to invest the word denies with such contemptuous irony that it is virtually transformed into an admission of guilt. Any reference to the disposability or shoddiness of the spectacle is ingenuousness tricked into a double-talk disingenuousness. One may well feel that perhaps the special effects in a scene taken to represent the full evil of the horror genre's vicious nature fall short of the mark when it comes to shocking realism. But pointing to this technical shortcoming in response to a provocation to defend horror films plays right into the hands of the enemy. Illusion and reality, thought and deed. What is needed in the debate about screen violence is a thorough recognition of the difference between thought and action. All screen violence is gratuitous, no matter how high-handed the contextual defense. The only place for responsible violence is, dubiously, in the realm of actions in the world. As filmmaker David Cronenberg asserts, an artist, and I believe that for these purposes we must include even the least imaginative purveyors of sensationalism, has no social responsibility to prove in his work. The realm of representation and the world of physical action are distinct provinces. This may seem a less than dialectical formulation, especially as much art has itself pursued a convoluted philosophical exploration of the interrelatedness of art and reality. The difference is that artistic explorations of the theme take place entirely, and entirely appropriately, at the level of discourse. Discourse is therefore the only conduit between the distinct regions of art and reality. If a film appears to indulge in sadistic displays and questionable representations of human behavior, the appropriate response can be a dialectical one within discourse, but not without it in either sense of the word. It is an absurd endeavor to attempt to establish thoughts as things. Art in all its forms requires that it be thought about, however casually, in order to exist. Without this, it would be nothing more than a philosophic tree falling in a forest with no one there to hear it. Cinematic images are analogous to projected thoughts in a technological lucid dream state, simultaneously ours and yet strangely other. The actual experience of watching is characterized by a willed suspension of disbelief, not just of the narrative's devices, but of the whole technological simulation. Nonetheless, as we remember where we are and stand to leave the auditorium, this willed submission to the spectacle definitively ends. What we subsequently do with the recollections of what we have gazed at is the conscious responsibility of each individual. From words we passed to deeds, de libertine boast in the 120 days of Sodom. Should an individual pass from images through discourse on those images and on into acts of physical violence in the real world, he has entered into a domain of law. A law, let it be said, that need accept no causal reference to consumed images in this person's defense. The event of cinema, or for that matter video, is consciously present to all viewers before and after the dream state of viewing. Physical actions in the real world take immediate and unmistakable precedence over the image the moment we stop watching. Otherwise, why stand up to leave the theater? Surely a blink slash edit would take us where we wanted to go. No one thinks like that, and so there can be no credence given to absurd assertions that someone acted violently because they thought they were in a film or because they were unable to distinguish illusion and reality. To kidnap Woody Allen's gag, illusion is like death. Try getting a good steak dinner there. The only exceptions to this awareness are psychotics and schizophrenics for whom anything the barking of a neighbor's dog, the son of Sam, to the lyrics of a Beatles song, Charles Manson, can appear as a directive to violent action. The use of such a minority by advocates of draconian censorship to curb the freedom of every individual is disgusting and dishonest. Typically, it's always someone else's pleasures that are responsible for social evils. Politicians who attack the cinema for directing impressionable minds to perform hideous violence are almost, without fail, utterly disinterested in film. Moral campaigners merely focus on the cinema because the real causes of violence in society are either too difficult to define or too close to home for them to want to address. As for the censors themselves, they have the oldest reason in the world to espouse the value of what they do. They get paid for it whilst occupying a regal position towards a culture that they are impotent to contribute to. It isn't that the law has no role to play in the realm of entertainment. Classification, the restriction of availability to minors, warning of extreme content in the packaging of entertainments, making the industry pay full attention to such restrictions. These are appropriate responses to social concern. Of course, there are exceptions, some obvious, some less so. Advertising, for instance, with its direct primary intention, unambiguously to provoke people into expenditure and consumption, entails social responsibilities, as does the filming of events taking place in the world that involve already defined criminal conduct, like the use of force, real sexual violence, etc. Child pornography is ipso facto subject to censure by law because it has a direct real-time contiguance with an already outlawed criminal activity. There is a place for the denial of a person's legal right to sell video recordings of a serious sex crime for profit. But the major crime is the sexual act. Its recording is an admittedly disturbing secondary factor. Such real-life horrors are fittingly dealt with by criminal law. Again, it is with breathtaking cynicism that the advocates of censorship attempt to suggest there is no way to prevent a flood of child pornography without imposing censorship on all films of any kind. Vitally, no crime is truly committed before the cameras of a horror film. Social intolerance of aberrant human behavior is a distinct and separate matter. Let the law and the individual hammer that one out and leave the protected world of the cinema, whose true relation is not to reality, but to the imaginary and to thought itself in the province of independent choice where they belong. Dave and I are gonna get more into that uh, in next week's episode. Um, It is worth, of course, considering that um, Stephen Thrower, as a former member of seminal um, industrial experimental band Coil, uh, also um, gay icons, (laughs) Coil, uh, has a specific take on censorship that comes from the kind of Thatcher, post-Thatcher, era of what was called video nasties in the UK. There was a list of uh, banned films. There was a whole uh, particularly uh, Orwellian censorship situation going on in the UK in the 80s and early 90s. And um, uh, that was perhaps unsurprisingly and of course tragically often used as a way to persecute um, gay and queer people basically the counterculture in lots of ways. And so someone like Stephen Thrower writing this, I think, has a, has a particular... Um, there's a particular emotion in the way that he talks about this, and uh, he has a particular perspective on this that I think is is very valuable. And um, so I, I bring that up just to account for some of the intensity, um, especially towards the end of the, the section that I've read, the references to you know, child pornography and all that was dealing with the kinds of um, things that people were getting accused of in that time that that really had no relation to reality and was about, um, you know, oppressing oppressing certain social groups in a way that is unfortunately still going on. So anyway, (laughs) that's enough for now. Um, I hope this was informative. Uh, again, the book is called Beyond Terror, The Films of Lucio Fulci by Stephen Thrower. It is available if you'd like to read more. It has uh, lots and lots of great information, um, archival photos, all sorts of things like that. So definitely check it out if what uh, you've just heard is intriguing. And otherwise, I'll uh, we'll see you next week for our discussion of Fulci's um, The Beyond.